the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Hello and welcome back, friends, to the episode two recap and review of the new star series, Becoming Elizabeth. I'm your host, Christine Morgan, and I have been waiting very impatiently to talk with you about this latest episode. It was quite a controversial one. And believe me, I have seen your comments. I have read your concerns over the interpretation and the storyline. Where is this going? Well, have no fear because I don't have any answers. All of this is speculation, but I do have theories. So take what you like leave what you don't. And I'm so glad you came back. Should we get back into it? So our new episode starts off with really high energy. Thomas is walking around Chelsea Place early in the morning, screaming to wake people up. He's walking around the servants. He's busting into rooms. Most notably, though, he busts into Elizabeth's room. And we're treated to the very famous scene of Thomas waking up Elizabeth. And he's in his nightshirt and, um, you know, he's being playful. He's not wearing full pants. And Cat Ashley is mortified, of course. And we're being shown this sort of cheeky side of Thomas. And we know they've set him up to be witty. But this, to me, is sort of clown behavior. Obviously, it's not normal. And while we know that this incident did happen in real life, somehow I'm just having a difficult time picturing this as Catherine Parr's choice of a life partner. Um, But opposites attract. He is the yin to her yang. They, uh, They fill in each other's blanks, I guess. Um... And then one thing that I saw many of you appreciate in the first episode that is now being carried over into episode two is the fact that servants are very present for these private moments. So even as Thomas bursts into Elizabeth's room, Kat is right there and she starts scolding him. And there are three other ladies in waiting who are sleeping on the floor of Elizabeth's bedroom. So realistically, though, Like, honestly, if someone did this to me, I would not be amused at any age. Sir, it is too much. It's it's sort of like class clown behavior. Uh, And it feels very overwhelming, but (laughs) I'm kind of introverted. So maybe that's just me. Then we have a really powerful bit of insight into Elizabeth's young mind in a scene between the princess and Catherine Parr, where Catherine is asking Elizabeth for forgiveness over her marriage to Thomas, presumably beyond the fact that this was a matter of state and it was done without royal permission. Catherine is, you know, picking up on some vibes that Elizabeth is unhappy. Uh, And then Catherine has this great line where she acknowledges that her love has made her a bit blind in regard to knowing whether or not her new husband is a good man. And Elizabeth just kind of looks at her and says, that's silly. And it's this concept of losing control or losing critical awareness because of love, and it's just not computing for Elizabeth. And this, again, is very simple writing that gives us so much detail. 
So regardless of how the princess's logical mind works, she's still only 14, and there are going to be things she doesn't understand until she experiences them for better or for worse. Then we're graced with this really fabulous scene of a court performance, uh, a mask performance. And there's a company of actors in masks and they're dressed as animals. We see a donkey, we see some goofy characters, and their act is a pretty raunchy, comedic one. Again, we're playing into the fact that the tutors really did know how to have fun. And we don't see a lot of this type of um, frivolity in some other Tudor era dramas that we have watched previously. So I'm really enjoying this. And of course, the characters are enjoying the show too, until one of the actors comes out dressed as the Pope, but he's being mocked. And there's a problem with that because the audience of this show is the royal siblings and you know their household or their, their family. So it's King Edward, it's Princess Elizabeth, but it's also Princess Mary Tudor. And the Pope has actually been made up to look very ridiculous. And all the characters essentially attack him and humiliate him. And the tone of the room changes. And it's all because the Princess Mary is no longer amused. And obviously her siblings are aware of that. Remember, Mary is the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, and she's Catholic, so she believes the Pope is holy. And this whole English Reformation has been a painful process for her, both personally and in regard to her mother being set aside, but also because, well, the dialogue, what she says is that she is cleaved in two over having to choose her allegiance to her God or to her brother, the king. And so, again, another carryover that you guys liked in episode one is sort of the relationship between the siblings showing that they're familiar with each other. These were not compartmentalized people. They had relationships with their family, and we're getting to see that with these small but very honest interactions. For example, Mary gets up and she leaves the court mask. And King Edward, who is young, remember, he follows her and he asks if she's angry with him. And that's because he cares. And frankly, so does she. And I imagine this would be a really sensitive spot for Mary in general, because not only is she Catholic and she's faithful to that belief, but she's around 34 years old and she's negotiating her feelings with an 11-year-old boy. And that would be very humbling, to say the least. And I also have to give the actress, Ramola Garay, a shout out because she's giving such strong performances as Mary Tudor. And this is crucial because right now in the field of history, there is a movement to sort of redefine and recontextualize who Mary Tudor was. And we're trying to undo this really damaging propaganda image she's been given as Bloody Mary. And I saw so many of you interacting and commenting at how impressive this acting performance is. And I completely agree. Um, We're getting quiet confidence, eloquence, emotional maturity, but it's all wrapped up in this really deep, it's not exhaustion, 
But it's kind of like that. It's like Mary's been beating her drum for so long, and she knows who she can and can't trust at court, and she's trying to guide her siblings. But at 34, she's been promised so many things, very few of which have come to fruition for her. And so she has a sadness and a caution all coexisting with her zeal, right? And it's it's living in a very dangerous state for her. And I think that's really coming through in this performance. So I want to make sure that I give her um, her due before we move on. Then later, Elizabeth also approaches Mary. And I don't know if any of you guys caught this, but I noticed, I think at this moment, Mary believes Elizabeth is Catholic. Um, She's using the word us and we when referring to her faith and hoping that Edward will pick a side and end up with the Catholics. Um, Gosh, the writers are giving Mary really excellent focus and lines in this episode. I love the exchange that the sisters have over power and persuasion at court, or in Mary's case, lack thereof, uh, also in Elizabeth's case. So again, Alicia von Rittberg is also very strong. And I'm starting to get familiar with, um, I don't want this to sound strange, but kind of with her physicality on screen, because she's making really great choices as an actor in delivering subtext with her gestures. So she might say something, but her body says something different, right? Uh, And so she's keeping Elizabeth grounded, and she's not trying to play a 14-year-old. Rather, she is existing as one. Um, And that might be just like trippy theater nerd language, but I own it. I embrace it. It is who I am. Um, (laughs) So it strikes me in this scene, though, how openly they discuss what happened to their mothers, but it's in a fairly detached way. I don't know if any of you are like me, but um, I have absolutely sat around and thought, how did these um, royal children talk about their mothers specifically? Did they? Was it sort of a topic of conversation that never came up? Well, in this series, the creative choice has been that it is acknowledged Uh, The fate of Tudor queens has been pretty terrible. The track record is bad. Um, And so they're talking very openly about the fates of their mothers here. And so um, they're coming to terms with what might happen to each of them. So Mary's afraid she might be banished from court or even executed. And she fears for Elizabeth, too. She asks Elizabeth to leave Parr and Seymour's home and come live with her, And the line is not, you know, it's so that Elizabeth can be sane and safe. So we get some more insight into the protective figure that Mary is emphasizing Elizabeth needs to be safe. There's something that Mary doesn't like about her present situation. And remember, Mary has seen the ebbs and the flows, the rise and the fall of Tudor courts and councils, and she knows very well the precarity of her situation and her sister, her sister's situation. Um, and then she mentions, too, that she's sort of had a falling out with Catherine Parr. They don't give us a lot of context here, 
um, they don't fill in that blank for us. So realistically, there are a couple of reasons for this falling out. Uh, But one of them has to do with religion, which isn't a surprise, but um, listen to this. So when Henry VIII died, Catherine Parr actually invited Princess Mary to translate uh, Erasmus' text, the famous uh, humanist Erasmus. And the text was called Paraphrases Upon the Gospel of St. John. So essentially, she is going to be translating a shortened version of a new, the New Testament, St. John. Okay. Um, and then the princess does that, and she publishes under her name as a translator. But then she actually hears rumors that her translation work is being used to promote reform. And when she finds that out, she does not complete her translation and instead... She gives back the unfinished work to one of Catherine Parr's advisors, and that is who finishes the translation. Actually, Princess Mary's engagement at all with this project was pretty surprising, Uh, but there is precedent for royal women to have a hand in at least commissioning translations. I mean, Catherine of Aragon, Margaret Beaufort, um, those are all uh, women in her family who had done that. Uh, patronized humanist writers and Erasmus. So for Mary, this might have been in her mind uh, a continuation of royal women's support for translations, except now she is actively translating, just like Catherine Parr. Um, And so ultimately, Mary did not appreciate how her work was being used and that the purpose of the translations had not been made clear. So that could be one of the reasons that Mary expresses this falling out has happened. But also by extension, she's going to be frustrated with her brother, Edward, who was, of course, approving the printing and the spreading of that text. So there's a little background on that relationship. Okay, also forgive me if you sent this to me and I just missed it. I'm terribly sorry. Uh, But I didn't see anyone mention during the court mask this um, charade that Thomas Seymour goes through with the thumbs up or the thumbs down gesture, um, essentially used to condemn the Pope. And I thought this was a very pop culture addition. And so I got curious about how famous that gesture really would have been in the mid-1500s England. Um, Obviously, the most famous portrayal of this in recent memory would be from the movie Gladiator, where in ancient Rome, the thumbs up meant, you know, a gladiator's life was spared or a thumbs down meant he was to die. And while it may have been known to Tudor England... In doing some admittedly light research on the gesture, it seems that during this period and earlier, the meaning of thumbs up and thumbs down was actually reversed. So I can actually, I can see that this is sort of a pop culture inclusion. Of course, ending with Jane Grey being asked to decide the Pope's fate and again being placed in a very visible position for King Edward to see her and realize that he's aligned with her, at least on the topic of religion. And then the show is followed with a pretty public altercation between Somerset and Catherine Parr over her audacity to wear the royal jewels to the mask when she is no longer technically a royal. 
uh, and he brings up Henry VIII's will, as does she. And then he suggests that he wants to give the jewels to the Princess Mary. So you know I had to ask around and find out what really happened. So um, a couple shout-outs in this section. First, shout-out to Rebecca Larson, who actually sent me a translated excerpt from Henry VIII's will. And it says this. The queen, his wife, shall have 3,000 pounds in plate, jewels, and stuff besides what she shall please to take of what she has already. So the first part of this issue is solved. In reality, Catherine gets to keep the jewels that she wants, uh, things that have been gifted to her, things that she likes, plus anything else up to the worth of 3,000 pounds. And that is a ton of value. That is so much money. And then the will says, she, Catherine, will further receive in money 1,000 pounds besides the enjoyment of her jointure. So essentially, she gets to receive money, this jointure, for the rest of her life, plus this 1,000 pounds in cash upon the king's death. And on my Twitter feed, I had some back and forth. Uh, Shout out now to the Lady Meg, who pointed out that it wouldn't have made sense for the jewels to go to Mary, obviously, because the presumption was that King Edward would pick a queen of his own and the crown jewels would go to her. So what is known to comprise the jewels of the Queen of England at this time is then recorded, spoiler alert, in the reign of Mary Tudor and again in the reign of Elizabeth. So thank you to the Lady Meg for sharing some of that research and just confirming that giving the jewels to Mary would have been strange. And Catherine Parr was set up just fine following the death of the king. So what? from what I've gathered, some of you are not really sure what to make of this creative interpretation of Catherine Parr in this series. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what's happening to this created character. Obviously, Parr was a real person, an incredibly smart and clever woman, very well educated. Um, And what we see on screen is the character of Parr, a writer's imagined manifestation So please don't be offended if I speak sometimes about Parr in terms of her character or really anyone else. So to me in the series, the character makes sense. Not only does she speak to her husband, whom she has loved for many, many years, with candor and anger, but she also speaks to Elizabeth with equally transparent language. And this sort of symbolizes to us the maturation of the princess. We have this incredible scene between Elizabeth and Catherine in front of the fire in which Catherine attempts to lift a little more of the childlike veil, the protective veil from Elizabeth's eyes just a little further. And what starts as a conversation about the princess Mary evolves into a teaching moment. I really think that this is what Catherine Parr did best. She taught. Because Whether it's teaching her stepchildren or it's writing and publishing to teach the masses about religion, she was in her lifetime entrusted with instruction time and time again. So what I see in this scene is a mother figure laying out a few more cards from the deck for her child. And this deck is all about power. 
who wants it, who has it, who might lose it. And if women are frequently used, then it's actually in their best interest to figure out how they can also use people. And so this is, again, an excellent setup for Elizabeth's developing perspective. And I don't say that um, negatively towards Elizabeth. I think this realization is life-changing. The ability to self-reflect on who is using me and how can I use them too is a really fun concept in the context of Tudor court. Then, of course, we get um, her shifting perspective right away. We see the next morning Thomas is on his morning rampage and he barges into Elizabeth's room only to find he's not surprised her. He has not caught her off guard and undone. Instead, this time she is dressed and she is waiting for him. So in this episode alone, we've been shown Elizabeth's aversion to the idea of love making her blind. And she's experimenting with being prepared in the face of unseemly surprises or wanting to avoid being caught in a compromising state. And this is uh, an element of Elizabeth that we know uh, she carries with her throughout her life. So I loved this. And I love all the acting choices here. And I'm just really, I'm digging the subtlety of the writing here. Um, Here's another acting choice that stood out to me. I saw maybe a handful of people talk about this. So once Thomas realizes he can't keep the Princess Elizabeth's attention with childish games, he then makes his move and propositions her outright. But to get her attention, again, the character of Thomas, uh, these are all made up conversations. We have no idea what really happened in terms of how they interacted one-on-one, but in, in order to get her attention um, and, and show her how frustrated he is when she turns him down, he keeps like grabbing her corset from the top and it's really intimate and it's pretty aggressive. And I am genuinely curious about this choice and how it kind of came to be. I don't know of any accounts of Thomas that put him as a physical aggressor. So this moment certainly feels threatening, but again, it's intimate and it's a new layer to this relationship. And of course he does it as he's talking about the fact that his feelings for Elizabeth threaten his very life. So it leaves her very vulnerable where he wants to be, um, the only person that, that she's considering, but he's like grabbing at her. Um, and so I think this is a creative actor's choice, but it's really telling of the character version of Thomas that's being curated. I mean, if someone started grabbing at my clothes during a fight, that would be so threatening. No context needed, no speech about modern ideas, you know, around these gestures. I mean, it's just flat out not a good feeling. So for those saying that he's being romanticized. I disagree. I think we're watching the perspective of Thomas Seymour change in real time as Elizabeth's perspective changes too. I think of the, I think the name of the game with this story, obviously, which is being told for entertainment purposes, the name of the game is going to be subtlety. And that's 
probably the most daring type of storytelling. Because if you blink, if you miss the move, if you miss the word, if you miss the look of anger, you know, we're just going to have to be really engaged with this material to catch it all. I don't think there's going to be anything that is said or any gesture that is made that has not been um, creatively discussed. I think it's all intentional. Um, Okay. And then we get into the Privy Council scene, which gives us a little levity. We need a little levity sometimes after these kind of heavy interactions. Um, you know, they're discussing the war with Scotland over Mary Queen of Scots again. And then Knight Pedro shows up again and he's going kind of jab for jab with Henry Gray, who is Jane's father. Um, and so Knight Pedro gets some really great insults in, but for Somerset, he's just a knight. And those kinds of jokes or insults kind of cross the line of decorum based on the hierarchy of court and this council. So Somerset kicks Pedro out of the meeting and then decides to kind of insult Henry Gray himself. Because why not? Let's just drive the point home. On a very brief um, kind of unrelated topic, um, I've always wanted to see sort of a, a show about like American founding fathers, just knowing that some of these um, scenes with these privy councils, you know, they're really open. They're cursing at each other. They're insulting each other. Um, Sometimes they come to physical blows. I think that would be a really fun take on American history as well. But uh, regardless of that little detour, um, our showrunner here, Anya Reese, is giving us some of that with these short scenes. Um, these council scenes are such a great way to introduce historical figures and then give them quick snapshots of development. And then as it turns out, Knight Pedro is Catholic, and he has a pretty terrible habit of running his mouth <laughs> up above his station. Um, And he sort of gets into a back and forth with the Princess Mary, where he has sort of snuck into her mass. And he sort of tells her off for uh, the fact that she thought maybe he would be related to or know uh, her mother's former servant, Catalina, who we saw in The Spanish Princess. Uh, And then we also learn, you know, he's making his place at court. He's earning his promotions. He's earning the respect Uh, And so it'll be kind of fun to see what they do with his character. Uh, Then we get this really great brief scene of King Edward getting dressed. Uh, Shout out here to the costume director, Bartholomew Karras, or Bart Karras, for this incredible interpretation of the red coat with rubies sewn in all over up to the neck and the ermine cloak. And of course, that would have been worn by nobility as part of the sumptuary laws. And then the cherry on top, he puts on that floppy black hat with the white feather. And if you didn't recognize this imagery, this to me looked like the outfit Edward wore for his royal portrait painted in 1550. So That places us on our timeline at the year 1550, and that means that between episode one and episode two, we've had a three-year progression. Then later, we see Edward holding an audience with his sister Mary, and then he tells her she can't hold public mass anymore. She has to convert to Protestantism if she's going to stay at court. 
uh, she obviously chooses to leave court, and she returns to the country, her estate, and Framlingham. So without much pomp or circumstance, we finally get our introduction to Robert Dudley, played by Jamie Blackley, complete with the earring. You know it, you love it. They had to keep it. Uh, That would be a really hard thing not to include. It's such Tudor content canon. I mean, if Tom Hardy wore the earring, Jamie Blackley is going to have to wear the earring. And I quite like it. It was in fashion at the time. There's one older portrait of Dudley from 1547. He's wearing an earring. So it's not entirely off base. And of course, I say we finally meet Robert as if we had to wait forever. It's been one episode. But now you know, I'm very excited to meet him and to see Elizabeth out hunting. We haven't seen Mary or Edward do this yet, and it's kind of a nice tie back to Elizabeth's father and mother, Anne Boleyn, who were known to go out riding and on progresses together. I like to think that Jonathan Rhys Myers and Natalie Dormer would be so proud. And then again, Elizabeth's riding costume is to die for. She's got this fantastic long green coat and these thigh-high leather boots. And I'm not a costume historian, but I like the aesthetic regardless. It works for me. Um, Online, this hunting scene got a lot of attention. Like, what does it mean? Is it a metaphor? Um... And it turns out, I mean, Elizabeth was a really strong horseback rider. She loved hunting and hawking. Uh, It would have been traditional for her to be invited to then kill any injured animals. Uh, So this is not made up. This would have absolutely been part of Elizabeth's life. Uh, And Robert Dudley, uh, he will later become her master of the horse. And he was widely known as the only person at court who could truly keep up with Elizabeth on horseback. Uh, And they do form a friendship and a trust around hunting. I think the moment, you have to tell me if you noticed this, the moment Robert Dudley falls for Elizabeth is when she insists on being able to hunt and kill this stag in the forest, right? And then it cuts to him and the thunder claps and it's, Very dramatic, which means I love it. Heavy-handed? A bit. Great television? You bet. I am the audience for this. Um, (laughs) Some of you have suggested that her killing the stag might be a metaphor for how she feels about Thomas. You know, she's put in pursuit, and then she challenges the power dynamic, and then ultimately she ends the power dynamic. I can see that. I can see this having multiple meanings. Um, I also think though the hunting scene is indicative of how she's starting to see herself. You know, she demands equality from Robert in a way she hasn't demanded of others just yet. And she demands that he gives her this dagger so she can slay the stag. And so I almost think the stag is her, herself, her naivety maybe. Um, But then, of course, the character of Thomas makes it about him, and he asks about it later. I am catching on that for the sake of development in an eight-episode arc, some relationships have to be established quickly, and Robert is one of them. When Elizabeth first sees him, you know, they're already acquainted. 
they're familiar enough for her to tease him, and then he feels comfortable enough to discuss the religious divide in England and almost advise her not to pick sides. And that is very familiar. So I'm choosing to roll with it. I really hope you guys will roll with it too. It makes it so much more fun. Um, But if you want to know more about Dudley, let me know. We can talk about it. In one scene, I got really hung up on this, and this is so niche, so I'll make it very brief. In one scene, Edward and Somerset are talking over dinner in front of the fire. Lots of fire in this episode. Um, And then Edward drinks from his glass of wine, um, and the, the glass is actually glass, like clear glass. And I don't know why, but like visually that was... That was really surprising to me. Did you notice that too? Like the bottom of the glass was clear. So I did a little research. It seems like it could be period appropriate, but it is such a niche detail. Do any of the listeners know about this detail? Chime in. Tell me if this is period appropriate. Um, Material history is just really difficult to sort through in a day or two. So help. Tell me. Um, Okay, then we get to our big scene, the scene that has the internet divided, the scene that will make you angry, or I don't know, it seems like it mostly made people angry. Um, (laughs) So Thomas Seymour shows us again in his creative character for this show, that he is listening and noticing the things that Elizabeth is being vocal about. You know, she's warned by Catherine Parr to be careful who is using her. And then Thomas declares his affection and calls it an unuseful move. Language is important. We have to notice all these details. Um, so he's got Elizabeth figured out. He knows how to speak to her in a way that makes her feel empowered and adored. But really, it's curated language. And again, it's subtle. And I'm emphasizing, you know, it's a creative choice. It makes for compelling TV. And, you know, again, that's why Elizabeth is played by a 28-year-old woman and not a 14-year-old child. These are deliberate creative choices. In reality, there's so much more nuance and debate over this relationship between Thomas and Elizabeth. And it includes, you know, forged documents, um, testimonies and recollections that sort of cancel each other out. Um, You know, I believe the inclusion of her getting up early to dissuade his morning antics is true. Uh, Her door is locked more often. Uh, Although that could be an insistence of Cat Ashley for the purpose of decorum. But, you know, there there are so many things that happened here that we don't know. So keep that in mind as we venture further. I'm fact-checking where I can for historical purposes, but I could also appreciate the creative license that's taken. Well, I mean, it's not just writing, is it? Because actors bring so much to the table in their interpretations, too. In fact, the way Elizabeth is hot and cold in this one episode is probably fairly realistic. Think of it. I mean, she's she's the narrator. Uh, and if you're feeling unclear on what you're supposed to think about Thomas Seymour, it's because Elizabeth is also unclear of what she is supposed to think about Thomas Seymour. So finally, full circle, we see Elizabeth 
make her choice around which sibling to align herself with, at least for the optics, she chooses her brother, King Edward. And she meets him to pray, and he realizes that he has support. And again, acting here is so great. Edward's whole face just gives this combination of relief that he has backup and the happy understanding now that Elizabeth is a Protestant and he is not alone. He's still a child, 11 or 12 at this point. And then, gosh, Elizabeth has this fantastic moment at the very end where she breaks the fourth wall. I love this. I love when this happens. And famously, programmers that do this are are really fun. So for example, Fleabag. But this show is obviously a very different tone than Fleabag. It's a historical drama. And so the final shot is sort of a nod to us as viewers that we know how this all ends. It reestablishes Elizabeth as our narrator and that she's showing us her version of what occurred, not necessarily even in hindsight. We're experiencing it with her as she processes her world. I really love this. It makes her and us active not passive. Like we're meant to join the fun and I'm going to do it. And I hope you will too. So remember, you can find me on Twitter at Ms. Christine Mo and contribute to my threads. I'll post them on Sundays. Let me know every week what you think, what you're curious about, and even what you hate. We'll unpack it all. It will all find its way into our recap. I hope to see you same time, same place next week. As always, I'm Christine Morgan, and I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.